Bruce Springsteen released Born in the USA in uh, 1984. It became a huge hit. Uh, many people heard the song as a patriotic anthem to America, expressing pride in our country. Even today, you can hear the song played as Fourth of July celebrations, county fairs, political rallies. I first heard the song when I was in high school, loved the song, loved the whole album. And then I went off to college, and then I got into this habit of reading song lyrics. And then one day, I read the lyrics to Born in the USA. Those of you who like the song but have never read the lyrics, I recommend doing that. Google it. It turns out the song is about this guy who doesn't grow up in the best of circumstances. In fact, he gets in trouble with the law, and so he gets sent to fight in Vietnam. And after he gets back, he faces discrimination. He can't find a job, and he can't get over and he can't move on from the experiences he had in Vietnam. And so his life spirals downward, and the song ends with this emotionally devastating final stanza. Down in the shadow of the penitentiary, out by the gas fires of the refinery, I'm 10 years burning down the road, nowhere to run, ain't got nowhere to go. I was born in the USA. So we have this booming chorus, this, this catchy hook, born in the USA, and then we have the rest of the song. And when we actually slow down and read the song lyrics, things change, things look different. The phrase, I was born in the USA, instead of expressing pride in being an American, turns into a plaintive, ironic cry for a birthright that has gone unfulfilled. Hey, I was born in the USA, what happened to me? And the song, instead of being a patriotic anthem, becomes Springsteen's indictment of our society for our failure to take care of our Vietnam veterans. When we slow down and read closely, things change. Things look different. Before I keep going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I want to greet all of you who are here in this room live with me and those of you joining us by video in Traditions, the gallery, downtown Fitchburg. And to those of you watching online or listening to our podcast, to those in the Chinese congregation of our church, to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We are very glad you are here. Today, we're starting a new sermon series. Now, usually at Blackhawk, a sermon series runs about six or seven weeks. This fall, we're doing something a little different. We are reading a book in the Bible called The Gospel of Mark, and... Uh, we're going to read it slowly. 15 weeks this fall, just on the first eight chapters. Then we take a break after Christmas and we come back for eight more Sundays and for a total of 23 Sundays in the Gospel of Mark. Why? Because when we read slowly and closely, things change, things look different. Look, we're in America. Just about everybody has heard the name Jesus. I don't care if you've never read the Bible in your life and never put a toe inside the, 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 the building of a church. We have heard of the name Jesus. And when we hear the name Jesus, images, concepts pop into our heads. Baby Jesus in a manger. Good teacher. Social reformer. Failed revolutionary. A, a prophet. A healer. A king. A savior. The son of God. The problem these images and concepts that pop into our head, they're like this chorus of a song. We know the catchy parts. But when we slow down and read the lyrics, 
Things change, things look different. Details pop out, new patterns emerge that help us see things differently. So this year, we're gonna go past the chorus, the familiar concepts and phrases. We're going to read the lyrics. We're gonna read closely. We're gonna slow down. And what do we find when we slow down to read the Gospel of Mark? An unexpected king announcing an unexpected kingdom. Jesus is the unexpected king. Not just unexpected to us, in the 20, people in the 21st century, but also people of his own time in the first century. Uh, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark in the 60s, not the 1960s, but 60s of the first century, uh, around 30 years uh, after the death of Jesus. And, uh, and who is this Mark guy, you ask? Well, an early church historian named Eusebius had this to say about Mark. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately, though not in order, all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord, for he had not himself heard the Lord or been his follower. But later, as I said, he followed Peter. Peter delivered teachings as occasion required rather than compiling a sort of orderly presentation of the traditions about the Lord. So Mark was not wrong in recording in this way the individual items as he remembered them. His one concern was to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in reporting them. Now, two critical things to notice about this paragraph. Number one, Mark was not an eyewitness. Mark was Peter's translator. Now, Peter, if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, Peter was one of Jesus' main followers and was one of the leaders in the early church. Tradition has it that Peter made his way to the church in Rome. But there's a problem. Peter spoke mostly Aramaic. People in Rome spoke Latin and Greek. So when Peter's teaching, he had a translator. Mark was his translator. Now, in the early 60s, there was a wave of persecution, and Peter got killed. And the church was like, oh my gosh, what do we do now? Who's going to teach us stories about Jesus? Hey, Mark, you're his translator. You remember his teachings. Write them down. The second thing to notice about that paragraph, Mark did not organize the stories chronologically in order because Peter didn't teach them chronologically in order. The way Peter taught was like this. Something was happening in the church, and Peter's like, oh yeah, that reminds me. Jesus once said this and this about that. So it's likely that Mark never actually knew the entire order of exactly how it happened. But Mark did take all the stories, and he organized them, and he put them into a book. And this book, this organization, the way it tells the story, we believe is the Word of God. This book, the way it's organized, reflects God's commentary on the life of Jesus. Now, there's no consensus among Bible scholars about how exactly the Gospel of Mark is or structured. However, there's broad agreement that there's a huge break at the end of chapter 8. So everything before that, Jesus travels around the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching about the kingdom of God, and he faces increasing opposition because his message differs from what people expect. And then we have that big break in the middle, right? This is where Jesus, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 9-1, Jesus says to his followers, Oh, I am the king of this kingdom. 
Oh, and by the way, I'm going to suffer and die. And then everything after that is Jesus and his followers on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus is teaching about the meaning of a king who's going to suffer and die. And then it ends with a showdown in Jerusalem. And so this is why we have divided our sermon series into two parts. This fall, we're, we're doing the series called The Unexpected Kingdom, chapters 1 through 8. And in the spring, we will have The Unexpected King, chapters 9 through 16. Okay. So with that, let's get started. Okay. Today, we're looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> yeah, I said we're going to read slowly, right? You caught that, right? All right, so here's, here's Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the first thing you should notice is that there's no verb in this verse. It's just four noun phrases. Arche, the beginning. The good news. Jesus, the Messiah. And the Son of God. I am not going to talk about the phrase, the Son of God. It's a very important phrase. Pastor Matt will cover it next week. So that's verse one. What does it mean? The key to understanding verse one is that it is the title of the Gospel of Mark. And this title is absolutely critical because it tells us something that we absolutely must know in order to read the book properly, and that is this. The Gospel of Mark is not a new story. It does not stand alone. It is an episode in a bigger story. Star Wars fans know that all the movies in the Star Wars franchise begin with this blue text across the screen, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then you have the title Star Wars, and then there's this, the iconic Opening crawl, episode four, a new hope. It is a period of civil war, blah, 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 blah. This opening gives us critical information, not least of which is, hey, there's actually episode one, two, and three, which was a huge mistake, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> but this opening tells us, hey, what you're about to watch, this movie you're about to watch, is going to be a continuation of a bigger story. Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 1, performs exactly the same function. It says the book you're about to read is an episode in a bigger story. So two obvious questions. Question number one, what bigger story are you talking about? Well, if you actually have your paper Bible in front of you, and you flip to actually the Gospel of Mark, what you will find is, hey, if you notice, we're more than halfway, like well into the second half of the Bible. The Bible is divided into two major sections. The first section is called the Old Testament, and that's where episode one and episode two lives. Mark is episode three. And that takes us to the obvious question number two. I don't see episode three written anywhere here. How'd you get that, Charles? And this is where we always say a Blackhawk. The Bible is not written to us, but for us. The Gospel of Mark is not written to 21st century Americans. It's written to the church in Rome back in the 60s of the first century. And when they read the first verse, they immediately knew that they're reading the next episode of the bigger story. How do they know that? Because the words in that verse 1 are drawn from the key words of the storyline 
of the Old Testament. Let me show you. Here's a brief sketch of the story of the Old Testament. Episode one, Genesis one through 11. God creates a good world and creates humans to rule over it. God intends to live in intimate community with the humans, but the humans rebel against God, insisting on ruling the world themselves. Their rebellion causes violence, destruction, broken relationships everywhere. God responds. Episode two. and runs from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the end of 2 Kings, which is the end of the narrative portion of the Old Testament. God calls a person named Abraham and uses his descendants to build a kingdom called Israel to show the world what it's like to know him and to live in loving community with him. But the people of his kingdom rebel against God. They break their commitment with him. God doesn't give up. God establishes a dynasty from a faithful king named David. This line of kings is supposed to inspire the people and lead them to live faithfully with God, but these kings also rebel. Indeed, they lead the way in sin and violence. Still not giving up, God destroys his kingdom. He sends his people into exile, hoping the trial of the exile would purify them and bring them back to faithfulness. That's how the Old Testament ends. That's it. The Old Testament ends with the kingdom of God destroyed and the people of God living in exile. In 586 BC, Israel was destroyed by an ancient empire called Babylon. And after that, for hundreds of years, the people of God live under the domination and the rule of foreign empires. And these foreign empires with foreign cultures and foreign religions, some of these empires, they tolerated their belief in God. Others, they tried to wipe them out. And so during this time of trial and suffering, God sent a series of prophets to proclaim a new hope. There is a new kingdom coming. A new kingdom is coming, led by a new king who is God or God-like. One of these prophets' name is Isaiah, and this is what Isaiah Isaiah had to say, in Isaiah chapter 40, to the prophets, to the exiles. He said, you who bring good news to Zion, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, sovereign Yahweh, when you see Lord in all caps, that's God's personal name. See, sovereign Yahweh comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. God is coming. God is coming to reign. God is coming to reestablish the kingdom of God. This is the good news. When the Old Testament Bible, the Hebrew Bible, was translated into Greek around 200 years before Jesus, they used the verb euangelizo to translate you who bring good news. Euangelizo. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Yeah? Kind of like the word euangelion that we just ran into in Mark 1, verse 1. Right? Euangelizo is the verb form. Euangelion is the noun form of the word. And in ancient Greek, both refer to good news on a national scale, like our country winning a battle or the birth of a new emperor. But among 
the Jewish community, among the people of God who read the Old Testament and draw their hope from that story, there can only be one euangelion, one good news, the coming of the new kingdom of God. And so the prophets tell these exiles, these these people of God, God is coming to reign and he's going to establish a new king and not just any king. This king is going to be a Jewish king. He's going to be the descendant of David. He's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem. Not only will he drive out the foreign empires, he's actually going to establish his reign over the whole world. He is going to be the ultimate king of the world. He will usher in the final age of history, an age of worldwide harmony and peace. And in Hebrew, this king is called the Mashiach, literally the anointed one. And when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they translated the Mashiach as Christos. And in English, Mashiach becomes the Messiah, and Christos becomes the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's his title. So let's take a look at Mark 1, verse 1 again. Right? A little fuller. Right? Mark 1, verse 1 reads like this, really. The beginning of the euangelion about the return of God's reign that will finally put an end to the exile of God's people and the rule of the foreign empires. Through Jesus, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christos, the long-promised Jewish king who established the kingdom of God over the entire world. And oh, by the way, he is also the son of God. Now, just in case we don't catch the significance of these keywords, Mark goes ahead and quotes from two prophets and from the Old Testament who talk about this new hope. The first one he quotes from is a, a, a prophet named Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God is now talking to the people. And so God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says Yahweh Almighty. So there's this prediction that the king, the the messenger, the Lord will show up in the temple. This is the new hope. Now, the the covenant, by the way, is a a committed relationship between God and his people. So the messenger of the covenant is a person who will restore this committed relationship. Now, Mark quotes this passage right at the beginning of his book. He quotes that passage. Obvious implication? Jesus is the Lord. He is the messenger of the covenant who will come all of a sudden and show up at the temple. And by the way, if you you know the Gospel of Mark, where does that climatic showdown take place in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus in the temple. A bit of foreshadowing that Mark is doing here. The second prophet that Mark quotes from is Isaiah. And we find that in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. And so this is Isaiah again talking to the exiles, proclaiming a new hope. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway 
for our God. Every valley should be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground should become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Yeah, Isaiah says, in this great new hope, there's gonna be a massive construction project. God's gonna build a super highway in the wilderness. He's gonna knock down mountains, use the fill of valleys, and make a smooth highway in which God will lead the exiles back to Jerusalem. This passage up here ends in verse five. If you skip four verses down, we get to the passage we looked at earlier. Before God and the exiles arrive, there's gonna be messengers going out in front to the cities of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem and say, hey, good news, good news. God is coming. He's bringing the exiles back and he is going to rebuild the kingdom of God. That's the euangelion. Now with all of that, if a reader is still not clear that this book is about the return of God's people from exile to build a new kingdom of God, Mark starts to talk about John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, we, the church, has been doing baptism for 2,000 years. And we know baptism. The moment we see the word baptism, we go, oh yeah, we know what that means. We know how, we, we've seen it. We know what it looks like. We, we're good, okay? And that's a problem. Okay, that's a problem. So I'm gonna ask you to hold off because here's the thing. We've seen it for 2,000 years. Back then, in the time of Jesus and John, nobody's seen a baptism. There's no baptism in the Old Testament. Within the Jewish tradition, the first record of a baptism is John the Baptist. So travel back with me, if you will. Imagine with me, if you will. You are in first century. You have never heard of the idea of baptism, of dunking people in water. And you hear this guy named John. He goes out to a river, and he's dunking people in the water. You're thinking, hmm, what is this guy doing? This is a photo, a promo photo, of an HBO TV show called Veep. It stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She plays Selena Myers, a, the vice president of the United States of America. The show is parody, it's dark comedy, it's satire. But I wanna, I wanna draw your attention to is the picture. And I wanna ask you, what's going on in this picture? Anybody, ideas? What'd you say, Washington? Somebody said it, good, okay. This is Washington crossing the Delaware. Okay, this is Washington crossing the Delaware. And, and so, we, we, this, is, right, this is parody, okay, we get that, okay? But what's going on, the big idea in that picture is obviously, Selena Meyer is the new George Washington. And she is going to lead a revolution against the powers that be. How do we know that? Well, it's the, it's the, the, the boat, the pose, the flag, right? Something about that picture that just triggers in some of us this particular event in our history. And if you're familiar with our history and know this iconic image, we know what the picture means. And if you don't know American history or if you don't know this particular photo or this particular painting, you don't know. It would just be a woman standing on a boat rather precariously. Let's go back to the first century. Let's go back to the first century. Early decades. So we're 
So this guy named John, he goes to the, he's in the wilderness. Um, he's in the wilderness that's close to the Judean countryside, very close to the city of Jerusalem, and he starts dunking people in this muddy little river called the Jordan River. By the way, did you notice how much geographical information Mark gives you in this passage? It's a lot of geography here. And that's because geography is critical. The blue line coming down, that's the Jordan River running north to south from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. To the west of the Jordan River is the Judean countryside. A little to the south-southwest is Jerusalem. And so where was John doing the dunking? Right, on, right around where the, the red X is, right there. And where is that place, we ask? The answer is we don't know. We're 21st century Americans. But if we ask a first century Jew, their response would be, duh. That's where Joshua led our people into the promised land. That's the founding of our nation. 1,400 years before Jesus Came, Jesus showed up, a guy named Joshua led the nation, the people of Israel, across the Jordan River into the promised land to establish the nation of Israel. That's their 4th of July. That's George Washington crossing the Delaware. That's Cornwallis surrendering at Yorktown. Right there, that spot. So remember, when, when John's doing this dunking thing, at this point, Israel is no longer independent. They're under foreign domination. They're run by the Romans. But the fire of nationalism burns deep in the heart of this people. So imagine, when I think about it, what are the people thinking when John is out there dunking people? He's putting them in the water, out of the water, in the water, out of the water. What are they thinking? They're thinking, whoa, this is a return from exile. This is a new entrance into the promised land. It's happening all over again. Right? Last time we kicked out the Canaanites, this time we're going to kick out the Romans. So the obvious conclusion then is, John has to be the next Joshua. He's the new Joshua. And John says, no, that's not me. And this was John's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, we will talk about the Holy Spirit next week. But here the message is clear. John's saying, no, 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 no. I am not the new Joshua, okay? Somebody else is coming. Somebody else is coming. And we know from verse one that the, the name of that somebody else is Joshua. Wait, what? <laughs> Simple diagram. Yeshua is a name in late classical Hebrew and Aramaic. When it gets transliterated into Greek, it becomes Jesus. In English, Yeshua becomes Joshua, and Jesus becomes Jesus. In English, we have two different names, Joshua and Jesus. In Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, there's only one name. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. So there's an absolute lack of subtlety here, folks. Mark is saying, hey, there is going to be a new Joshua, and his name is Joshua. And he is coming. He is going to lead the exiles back across the Jordan River. He's going to bring them into, into the land, and he's going to establish the new kingdom of God. And so here is verse 1 again. And this time, in full, fully amplified for American readers, 
uh, 21st century readers, uh, think of this as the opening crawl to the movie that we're going to make about Gospel of Mark. The story of God and humanity, episode three. I threw that in there. Uh, the beginning of the euangelium about the return of God's reign that will finally put an end to the exile of God's people and the rule of the foreign empires through a new Joshua, a new Jesus, a new Yeshua. Remember the first Joshua led God's people into the promised land and established the nation of Israel, whereas this new Joshua, this new Jesus, he's going to be the Messiah. He is going to be the Mashiach. He's going to be the Christos, the long-promised Jewish king who will establish the kingdom of God over the entire world. Oh, and by the way, he is the Son of God. This is the title of the book that we're going to be reading this year. I'll be excited to read it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Last thought for today. Um, I want to just get us to thinking about how we respond to this euangelion, this good news, this gospel. Because there's something about this euangelion that demands a response. Listen. In a world full of violence, hatred, corruption, and brokenness, God has sent his son Jesus to be the king of the world, to heal the sickness and corruption, to put an end to violence and hatred, to restore harmony, wholeness, and peace over the entire world. This king Jesus is looking for followers, a people who will join him on the mission to transform us and to transform our world. What's the next line? Would you like to join? The question flows right out of the message of the euangelium. It comes right out. Would you like to join? Would you like to pledge allegiance to this King Jesus? Would you like to become a subject in his kingdom? Would you like to pledge to live your life in a way that will fulfill his goal and his mission? The gospel of Mark is a story with an invitation built in. Unlike Star Wars, Mark does not set the story long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, far from it. The gospel of Mark lives right here, right now, Madison, 21st century. It is a story that is alive that invites us in today. So throughout this series, you're going to hear invitations. On different Sundays, you will be invited into different aspects of the kingdom. An invitation to join in the Trinitarian community. An invitation to repent and change the core trajectory of your life. An invitation to be part of a new family. An invitation to pick up the cross. What does that mean? We'll get there. We will read slowly and we will invite you because the text invites us, invites all of us. The invitation is for everyone. So if you're just checking out the church right now, you're checking out the claims of Christ, you're, you want to ask questions, you want to learn, and this whole kingdom of God thing sounds a little weird, I'm not sure what this all is, awesome, you are invited. If you grew up coming to church and then you went away from him for a few decades and you're just coming back right now, you remember a few things about Jesus, kind of hazy, not sure how it all fits together, you are invited. Awesome. Come to this. And if you've been following Jesus for, for a while now, and you just, just want to go deeper, you are invited. 
So today, I want to issue the first invitation of this series. I want to invite you to slow down and read slowly so that we can get to know this unexpected king and his unexpected kingdom. We made a journal um, as a companion for this series. And um, it's, it's to help us develop this habit of reading the Bible on a regular basis. And the, the content is incredibly simple. If you look at the, in, the inside of this journal, it's just the text of the Gospel of Mark and lots of space on the side, which means you can like, you know, circle and underline words that pop out at you, and you can take notes on your questions and on your thoughts on the side. And then bring these journals on Sundays. As you're listening to the talk, you can take notes, you can ask more questions, write more thoughts, and then bring them to your life groups. If you're, if you're in a life group, take them there for discussion purposes. Now, we are making these journals available um, without cost. However, because the quantities are limited, please limit yourself to one journal per person um, and grab them on your way out in all your venues and sites. Um, and for those of you who are listening on podcasts or, or on, on the internet and you're not in the Madison area, we have a PDF version of this journal that you can download and print out for yourself. We're going to end our service today by moving into a time of communion. It's entirely appropriate. We're going to read about communion next spring in the Gospel of Mark. But when we actually read that, we come to realize that a communion was for the first disciples their opportunity to commit their lives to following King Jesus. It's a tangible way of expressing their commitment. And that function has not changed in, in, in over these 2,000 years. It functioning the same way today. Today, when we take communion, what we're saying to ourselves and to the, those around us is, Jesus is our king, and we are his people. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then uh, all the sites and venues, the venue pastor will guide us into a time of communion. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for the good news, the euangelion, this, this amazing story that you are continuing and you're gonna to bring to a close. That you're gonna build your rule here on earth. You're not gonna leave us here to violence, to hatred, to, to unhealth, to corruption. But you want what is good, both in our lives and in the world around us. So we're grateful for that. And we wanna commit, we wanna be part of it. Jesus, and we pray, amen.